On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. With the last two weeks in our series, Who is Jesus? We've been looking at the seven metaphorical I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In John 6, we looked at Jesus' statement where he declared, I am the bread of life. And then in John 8, where he declared, I am the light of the world. And then last week in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And then also in that same chapter, he said, I am the good shepherd. And this morning, we're going to look at the three remaining I am sayings in John chapters 11, 14, and 15. So a lot to cover this morning, but we'll get through it. And I want us all to remember the purpose of this and of this series. It's so that hopefully and prayerfully we are going to get reacquainted with the greatness and the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is. And prayerfully this in turn will stir up in us the love and and sense of wonder that once characterized our lives as new believers and, and reignite in us a fresh zeal to pursue a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. I mean, there is always more to learn about Jesus and there is always room for more growth and depth in our communion with Him. And we should all be continually growing in our knowledge of Jesus personally, cultivating an ever-deepening relationship with Him so that we'll love Him more and more, which is our great purpose in life. I mean, we are here to know Him and, and to love Him and to worship and serve Him and to become more and more like Him. And I pray that God would work all of these things in each one of our hearts and lives, beginning with myself. Now, as we look at the three remaining I am statements, we're only going to touch on some of the high points. So this, isn't, this is not going to be an exposition of these passages in their entirety. Uh, that would take multiple messages to do that. So let's first turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You're familiar with... Uh, this account. Jesus is made aware that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is gravely ill. And upon hearing this, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then after saying that, the Lord remained where he was for two more days. And then he went to Bethany with his disciples. And by the time that he arrived in the village of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. And we read in John 11, verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Martha believed in the future resurrection of the people of God, but that wasn't what Jesus was speaking about here. I mean, our Lord wanted her to apply that promise to the present situation. He wanted her to believe that he could and would raise her brother Lazarus that very day. I mean, Martha's faith was trembling and weak and an imperfect swaying between grief and hope, but it was a real faith. And Jesus said to her in verse 25, notice, Jesus said to her, I am, you know, once again claiming to be none other than the great I am, the eternal God in human flesh. I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. Now please notice that Jesus did not claim to have resurrection and life or understand secrets about resurrection and life. He didn't merely say that he will bring about the resurrection or that he will be the cause of the resurrection, both of which are true, but something much, much stronger. Jesus said, I am. Not I will be. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, these Qualities are part and parcel of his being. Resurrection from the dead and genuine eternal life and fellowship with God are embodied in Jesus and can be found only in relationship to him. I mean, this is truly astounding. And here is the Lord Jesus standing before a woman whose brother has died and been buried for four days. And he says to her, in essence, Martha... You are looking into the face of the one who is the resurrection and the life. In other other words, I hold the keys of life and death. I am the foundation, the power of life itself. And I have the power to raise dead people from the grave. I just don't teach the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And in claiming I am the resurrection, Jesus was referring to what he said in in John 5, verses 28 and 29, that one day he'll speak and all the dead from all the ages will be raised, some to eternal life and, and others to eternal judgment. And Jesus further explains this when he adds in verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The word live has the sense of come to life, and it refers to the final resurrection of believers at the last day. So the one who believes in Jesus will live even if he dies physically, because Jesus will raise him in the final resurrection of believers on the last day, which Martha spoke of in verse 24, but our Lord was also going to raise her brother Lazarus immediately. Jesus' words, I am the life, the life, are further explained in verse 26 where he said, notice, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, what does that mean? Well, this doesn't mean that believers will never die physically. We know that because Jesus just referred to believers dying. All people die physically. Jesus died. All the apostles died. In human history, the only men uh, never to die were Enoch and Elijah. The believers who are living when Jesus returns will not die. But other than that, all people, including believers, face physical death. Well, then what does Jesus mean when he says that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die? 
Well, it means this. As unbelievers, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. By grace, we have been saved. And when we were born again, we were given the gift of new life, spiritual life. And in this new spiritual life, we're able to know God, experience God, fellowship with God, speak with God, hear from God through His Word. Since the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, And this new spiritual life we received is eternal. It is life eternal, which means the relationship and fellowship which we enjoy with God cannot be ended. Eternal life cannot, by definition, definition, end. It is eternal. The life we have with God in Christ today because of the new birth will never end. We will never see the end of it because there is no end of it. Oh, sure, our our physical bodies will die. But when our bodies die, we will not experience any break in our fellowship with God through Christ. There will never be one millisecond when we are out of saving fellowship with Jesus. Because eternal life begins the moment we believe in Christ, and it is not interrupted by physical death. In fact, at the moment of death, in that very instant, Our fellowship is perfected because death ushers us into the very presence of the Lord where we will await the resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns. And so when someone believes in Christ, the very life of God, the very life of Christ is is poured into their soul and, and that life is eternal. And everyone who is in Christ has already begun to experience eternal life and they will never die spiritually. We may go through the transition of physical death, but that death cannot destroy the spiritual and eternal life that Christ has given to us. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I mean, Martha already had believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, as she affirms in verse 27. But Jesus challenges her in her time of grief to believe specifically in Him as the resurrection and the life. And He says, do you believe this? In other words, do you believe these specific truths about me? Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha was a woman of faith, and her confession here is just an amazing statement of faith and personal trust and confidence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this confession of hers is especially touching and all the more remarkable because it was made under such grievous and trying circumstances. She said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe. Or actually better, it is, I have believed. In other words, it's a settled conviction in my heart, Lord, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, one who has come into the world to accomplish God's will. I believe you, Lord. And she had heard the claims of Jesus, and she said, I have believed. 
And that is the question for all of us this morning, isn't it? Do you believe? Do you believe this? You know, one commentator wrote, Believers should be able to say, I believe in one great God who has made this earth and has placed me upon it. I believe that I am sinful. I believe that this same God in love and wisdom sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me that I might be saved. I believe that Jesus existed with God and as God from the beginning, that he became man, that his death was a substitutionary death for me which by, my sin, by which my sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west and on the basis of which it will be remembered against me no more. I believe in Christ's historical, literal, and bodily resurrection by which God has demonstrated that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is acceptable to him as an all-sufficient atonement for the sin of his people and in which he has also given a foretaste of the coming resurrection of all who believe in him. I believe in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that he opens blind eyes to see Christ and moves rebellious wills to embrace him to their salvation. I believe that he illuminates the written word of God so that those who are saved can understand it and obey it. I believe in the fellowship of the saints. I believe in the church. I believe in God's providence by which nothing enters the life of the Christian that is not the product either of God's direct or permissive will. I believe that God chastises his children. I believe that he is determined to perfect the character of Jesus Christ and all who are united to Christ by faith. I believe that Jesus will one day return from heaven, even as he was seen to go into heaven bodily and in time. I believe that in that day there will be a final resurrection of believers to the life of heaven and of unbelievers to judgment. In hell there will be suffering. In heaven there will be a life of blessing prepared in advance by God for those whom he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And, and certainly, and, and obviously, there's so much more uh, that can be said, but, but he's right. Every Christian should at least be able to say, I believe that. We should be able to answer with a resounding, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe all that is written in your book. I mean, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and everyone who lives and believes in him has eternal life, and they will never die spiritually because the eternal life cannot be extinguished by physical death. And the question is, do you believe this? I mean, have you, like Martha, come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came down from heaven, the Savior of the world? Do you believe this? I don't mean do you just simply give mental or intellectual assent to it, but do you believe this with your heart, your mind, your soul? To the point that you have submitted your will to Him. Do you believe that He is Lord? And it is only by faith alone that these great truths are accepted. That's the question. You know, have you believed? In our previous study, Jesus said, I am the door. You know, I'm the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And the good news is that the door of the sheepfold is always open. The door to life, new spiritual life, eternal life, through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners is always open. 
And you may come right now and and enter the sheepfold through the door of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and have Him forever caring for you, providing for you, giving you not only life, but abundant life. But it is only by grace through faith in Him that we enter into life. And so for anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, my question, is, my question to you is, won't you come to Christ? Won't you come to Christ? I mean, won't you come through the door into the sheepfold, into the fellowship of the sheep who hear His voice, who, who know His salvation, who go in and out and enjoy the abundant life found only in Jesus? Why won't you come to Him? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's turn now to John chapter 14, where we find the sixth I am statement in John's Gospel. And you will remember from our study in John that John chapters 13 through 17 took place in the upper room, and it's uh, referred to as Jesus' upper room discourse. Uh, You know, Jesus, uh, in in chapter 13, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Uh, He set the example for them, told them that they were now to love one another the way he had loved them with a selfless, self-denying, sacrificial love. He, he then told them that one of them would betray him. And then he told them that he was going away and where he was going, uh, they couldn't come. And that also told, them that, told Peter that he was going to deny him. And, and all of this greatly disturbed the disciples. They, they were greatly troubled. And so Jesus said, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, believe in God. In other words, you believe in God and believe also in me. And we know that it means just continue believing in me. You believe in God, well, just keep on believing in Him. Keep on believing in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And now in verse 6, we read, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, there is so much that could be said about this verse. But before we actually get into the verse, I want to just say at the outset, because this is important for us to understand, that in this text, in this verse, or in this text, I mean, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In other words, these words were spoken to believers. These words were not first spoken as an evangelistic appeal to unbelievers. So this is not an evangelistic text. 
It certainly has some evangelistic content, but these words, again, were spoken to Jesus' own disciples. This is not an evangelistic text. This is a pastoral text. Jesus was ministering pastorally. I mean, these words were spoken as pastoral comfort and reassurance to Christian men who were greatly troubled and and struggling very much. And Jesus spoke these words to strengthen, encourage, and and to comfort the disciples' deeply troubled hearts. He's, He's giving them assurance that they, in fact, do know the way because they truly know the way. They they never have to worry about arriving at their final destination in the Father's house because their arrival is absolutely guaranteed. You know, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know? Jesus said, Thomas, I, I am the way. You do know the way, Thomas, because you know me. Notice the pronoun I. Jesus says, I, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The point is, it's all about Jesus. Christianity is not a philosophy, uh, although it is, There is such a thing as Christian philosophy. Christianity is not an ideal to cherish, although it is a a glorious ideal. It's also not merely an ethical code to adopt, although it is a, a glorious code. Christianity is Christ. It's all about Jesus. He is He is the gospel. He is God's gift to a world sunk in the darkness and ignorance of sin. Jesus is God's remedy for a world that is heading for an eternity of wrath. And that's why when you read the Gospels, you find Jesus saying things like, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, come to me. Christianity is not an ideal that you attach yourself to. I mean, the gospel does not call us to receive Jesus merely as an addition to our life, but rather as our life. I mean, Christianity is a person you come to trust in, believe in, love, follow, serve, and lay your life down for. That's what Christianity is. It's about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And here in these words, we find the Lord Jesus expressing who he is and and what he has come into the world to do. He says, I am the way. You know, I'm the way to God. And that is the main point of the verse. How do we know? Well, because the next statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, relates primarily to I am the way, which demonstrates that Jesus being the way is the main theme and truth and life are explanatory. In other words, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. And so the dominant truth is that Jesus is the way. And he is the way because he is the truth and he is the life. And we'll look at these one at a time. I mean, first of all, Jesus is the way. I mean, he is the the door of the sheep. Jesus didn't come to merely show us a way to God. He himself is the way. 
And it's true that he teaches the way, guides us in the way, and has dedicated for us a new and a living way, according to Hebrews 10. But all this is possible only because he himself is the way. Jesus alone is the way to the Father because in him alone God provided a way to justify the ungodly, a way for men to obtain the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. I mean, Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. It is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that has made a way for men to spend eternity with God in heaven. So Jesus is not merely a way, he is the way. And he is the only way. I mean, Proverbs tells us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is what? The way to death. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only way to the Father, the the way to heaven, the way to eternal blessedness. A missionary hired a guide to take him across this a vast desert, and when they got to the edge of the desert, the only thing the missionary saw in front of him uh, was miles and miles of desert. There wasn't a road. Uh, there wasn't even a trail. In fact, not even a single footprint. And the missionary's getting a little worried. And so he asked his guide with a tone of surprise, you know, where's the road? <laughs> Where is the road? And then with kind of a re- reproving glance, the guide replied, I am the road. In other words, the missionary was going to have to trust the guide to take him where he needed to go because he was the way. The guide was the way. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to heaven, and we must trust him to take us there. And that's what the Lord Jesus wanted Thomas and the disciples to know. They didn't need to be troubled because they did know the way, because they knew Jesus. He alone is the way, and he is the way because he alone is the truth. Jesus is not just one who teaches the truth. He is the truth. I mean, he is the very embodiment of truth. He is the truth in person. So those who have the Lord Jesus Christ have the truth, and it's not found anywhere else. Jesus said, I am the truth. And how hollow and and probably totally absurd that sounds uh, in our culture. Because for most people today, truth is relative, not absolute. I mean, truth is evolving, not static and revealed. Truth is, is personal, not universal. It's, it's private and not public. But Jesus says, oh no, no. He says, I am the truth. He did not say, I can teach you the truth, although he did. He said, I am the truth. Well, the truth about what? About God. The primary point here is that Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself makes God known to us, John said in chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. He is God's word made flesh. 
In everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, glory, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth of the Father. In Christ, God the Father is made known to us. And He is all the truth that men need for salvation, life, and godliness. And this is why the Apostle Paul restricted his preaching to proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. I mean, truth is not to be found in a system of philosophy, but rather in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He reveals God and He exposes man. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But it's, it's even broader than that. Jesus is the truth about everything. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who makes sense of everything because He is the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. I mean, everything in life finds its ultimate significance in Jesus Christ. That's just simple Christianity. Jesus Christ makes sense of everything. He makes sense of life. He makes sense of who I am, who you are. He makes sense of, of the plants and the trees outside. He makes sense of the cosmos because He spoke it into being and He upholds it by the word of His power. Jesus Christ is the truth. He alone is the revelation of the true God. He alone is the truth about God. But thirdly, Jesus said, I am the life. And again, he did not say, I can tell you how to have life, though he did and, and does that. But rather, he said, I am the life. And he is the life because he alone possesses the very life of God. In him was life, John 1 tells us. Jesus is the life, the one who has life in himself. He is the bread of life. He has the light of life, the words of life. And he came that we might have life and abundance. He is the resurrection and the life, as he said in chapter 11. And then he demonstrated it in the raising of Lazarus. He is the true God in eternal life. And, and so has the power to give eternal life to his sheep, as he said in John chapter 10. Jesus Christ is the source and giver of life, both spiritual and eternal. And just as in the original creation, He was the giver of physical life, so in the new creation, Jesus is the giver of life from above. And the life of God is found in Christ. And so therefore, when people come to Jesus, they come to the one in whom the life of the Father is found. And, and in this sense, Jesus is also the way to the Father. And those who receive Him have eternal life because He is the life. And therefore, to reject Christ, to reject Christ as Lord and Savior, is to reject life and to choose death. Because He is the life, His life cannot be taken away from Him. He laid it down just as He had the authority to take it up again. Christ is the life. 
As one man said, Christ is the life, the sinner's title to eternal life and pardon, the believer's root of spiritual life and holiness, the surety of the Christian's resurrection life. He that believes on Christ has everlasting life. He that abides in him as the branch abides in the vine shall bring forth much fruit. He that believes on him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The root of all life for soul and for body is Christ. Jesus said, Thomas, you know the way. I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. So so don't be troubled. Thomas, don't be troubled. You know me. I've revealed the truth to you. I've revealed the Father to you. I've given you life. I've given you myself. Thomas, you have life in me, and it will never end. And one day, Thomas, I'm going to bring you and and all who belong to me to myself, and we're all going to be together in the Father's house. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way to God is not by the Ten Commandments, The golden rule, baptism, communion, church membership, none of that, because none of those things make a person a Christian. I mean, Jesus is not a pleasant alternative. You know, just one option among many. And lest anyone miss the point, Jesus said in the plainest of words, look back at the verse, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive claim to being the only way to heaven. And Jesus is stressing that salvation, contrary to what many people think, is not obtainable through many ways. Only one way exists. Jesus is the only access to the Father because He is the only one from the Father. No one else can bring people to God because no one else has seen God or made Him known. No one else speaks and embodies the truth about God as Jesus does. No one else shares the very life of God. No one else has dealt with the problem of man's sin to bring people back to a holy God. This means that no one can legitimately claim to know God while rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, as He is presented to us in the Word of God. You reject Christ, you've rejected God. Period. People are shocked that we as Christians insist that Jesus is the only way of salvation and the only way to heaven. But look, Christians did not invent that claim. No ancient committee came up with that claim. No, the Lord Jesus Christ himself made that claim. It really is not a question of tolerance or being open to diversity. It is a question of whether we will accept and believe what the Lord Jesus Christ has said. And loved ones, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he is not any way to God. Because if there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them because he absolutely claimed that there was only one way to God and that he himself was that way. 
And so if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he certainly was not an honest man, he certainly was not a good moral teacher, and he certainly was not a true prophet. He would either be a lunatic or a lying devil, because there's no middle ground available to us. He is either who he claimed to be, the Son of the living God, very God himself, Or he's a liar and an imposter. And we know that Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. I mean, think for a minute of the great faith required to believe this statement about Jesus. Because it cannot be seen with the eye that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But He is. He most certainly is. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the way and the truth and the life. And we need to remember this. And we need to continually be reminding ourselves that Christ is everything. That He is the way and the truth and the life. Let's turn over now to John chapter 15. And there we find the the last of the seven I Am statements in John's Gospel. And this is still part of the upper room discourse. And as chapter 15 begins, I mean, Jesus knows his disciples are worried and deeply troubled about his leaving. And and so now he he re-emphasizes the closeness and the intimacy of their relationship with him. In chapter 14, verse 20, the Lord spoke of the mutual indwelling of the believer and Jesus. He he said to them, you are in me and, and I and in you. And here the same idea is expressed, only uh, doing so with the image of a vine and its branches. And by using this figure of speech, uh, you know, that, that metaphor, Jesus wants to underline the believer's closeness to him as branches to the vine and, and his closeness to believers as, as a vine to its branches. So he, he's speaking about uh, the believer's close union and communion with himself. And so Jesus begins now with an extended metaphor of the vine and the branches. It continues all the way down to verse 17. We're just going to look at a few of these verses. And so here on his last night with his disciples, just hours from the cross, Jesus again declares his deity saying, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Jesus speaks of himself not merely as a vine or even as the vine, but as the true vine. Now why would Jesus use this analogy? I mean, what would the disciples have thought when they heard Jesus make this claim? Well, this was imagery that they were very familiar with, actually, because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was depicted as a vine planted by God. 
And the vine became a national symbol of Israel. It even appeared on some of their coins during the Maccabean period. And there was even a large, beautiful golden vine over the entrance to the temple. And so there's an Old Testament background to this language. Israel was God's choice vine which he planted and and lavished care and attention upon. and, And he looked for it to yield fruit. But you've read the Old Testament. Israel, the vine, did not bear fruit to the glory of God. It only produced worthless grapes. And every single time Israel is pictured as a vine or a vineyard in the Old Testament, the result is disappointment and failure to produce good fruit along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. And we see this in passages like Isaiah 5, 1-7, through Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2, 21, 6, 8, 9, Ezekiel 17, 6-10, through 10, Ezekiel 19, 10-14, and Hosea 10, 1-2. You know, in each case, Israel was God's vine that he planted with the intention that it would bear fruit, but they were disobedient, unfaithful, and therefore they were unfruitful. You cannot be disobedient and unfaithful and remain fruitful. They were disobedient, unfaithful, and therefore they were unfruitful. The the fruitless vine was an image of Israel's spiritual failure. But here Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. The true vine. The one who fulfills everything that Israel failed to fulfill. The one to whom Israel pointed. The one that brings forth good fruit that will bring glory to his Father. The vine the Father will never be disappointed with. Jesus is the full and final revelation of of all that the vine anticipated and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He is the true vine, the one who is the source of, of life to all those who have been truly united to Him by faith. And Jesus is simply saying to His disciples, the relation between you and me is as close as the union between a vine and its branches. And therefore, you are as entirely dependent upon me as branches are upon the vine. And I am the true source. I'm the only source of all your life and spiritual strength and sustenance. The source of all God-glorifying spiritual fruit. And if anyone wants to be a part of the true people of God, then he or she must be connected to Christ who is the true vine, the final and the only source of spiritual life and sustenance. I am the vine, the true vine, he said, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus depicts the Father here as the vine dresser or the vine grower. The one who takes care of the vineyard, the one who walks among the vines lovingly caring for them. And as the vine dresser, he cuts off the, the fruitless branches and burns them. He, he prunes the ones that, that bear fruits so that they'll bear even more fruit. 
And he's in control of the whole process. And as the owner, he does all that is necessary for the true branches to bear much fruit. And so there is a vine, there is a vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And Jesus indicates in in verse 2 that there are two kinds of branches. Branches that do not bear fruit and branches that do bear fruit. The difference between them is whether they bear fruit or not. And this is important. Because fruitfulness is a mark of true spiritual life and of genuine faith in Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's a mark of real union and communion with Christ. And so if there is true spiritual life, there's going to be spiritual fruit. Certainly it's going to be in varying degrees. But if there is spiritual life, there will be spiritual fruit. And Jesus then tells us what the work of the Father is in this great vineyard of His. He says, and look back at verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Which means the Father removes it and, and destroys it. The work of the vine dresser is to totally remove these fruitless branches. And the branches who do not bear fruit and are taken away and burned are not genuine believers. And I wish we had time to go into this as we did when we studied John, but if you want to uh, uh, learn more about this, then uh, you can go online and, and download the message or listen to it there. But the branches who do not bear fruit and are taken away and burned are not genuine believers. They are those who profess some sort of connection to Jesus but who in reality do not belong to Him at all because their lives give no evidence of saving faith. I mean, you can profess all you want. But again, if there is spiritual life, there's going to be spiritual fruit. If there's spiritual life, there is going to be evidence of that in your life. So these branches that are taken off and destroyed have no spiritual life in them. So there's no fruit in their lives. And as a result, they're taken away. They're they're severed from their superficial connection with Christ. They would be like if you've ever been around vineyards or vines. Uh, You know that there are are good branches that are fruit-bearing branches, but then there are suckers. They sprout off the, the vine and all they do is draw uh, strength from the vine. They sap it of its, uh, of its strength, its nutrients, and all they ever produce is, is leaves. They look like one thing, but they're not. There's no fruit. And so what happens to those suckers? Well, the people who are tending the vineyard go by and cut those off because they're worthless. They're not true fruit-bearing vines. That's the picture here. They have no spiritual life, and so they're severed from this superficial connection with Christ. But the role of of the Father, the heavenly vine dresser, is is really twofold, because He not only takes away the, the fruitless branches, in the rest of verse 2, Jesus says, notice, 
And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. The branches that, are, that bear fruit are Christians. You say, how do we know? Because in verse 5, Jesus clearly identifies that believers are the branches of the vine when he says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Here Jesus says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, the father prunes, the vine dresser prunes. Why? So that it will bear more fruit. And the fruit they bear is the life of Christ being reproduced within them so that they're growing to be more and more and more like Him. And of course, uh, Paul tells us that we were predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. Jesus says the Father prunes every branch that does bear fruit. This means that no fruit-bearing branch is exempt from pruning. But the Father's purpose in pruning is, is loving. It's so that each branch will bear more fruit, become even more fruitful, become even more like Jesus. This then sheds a little light on, on many of the afflictions, trials, and difficulties that we as believers experience. They're all part of that mysterious process by which the Father, the, the heavenly vine dresser, purifies and, and sanctifies us. They are the, the pruning of the branches, which is for good and not for harm, to increase our fruitfulness. It's just the, our heavenly Father graciously, lovingly, tenderly pruning us that we might bear more fruit for His eternal glory. And so we mustn't resent God's pruning because it's for our good and, and His own glory. Instead, it should, it, should turn, it should cause us to turn to Him with a renewed desire to be more productive. You see, our Heavenly Father takes uh, the same tender interest in us that the vine dresser does in the branches of the vine, and He's continually watching over us in our spiritual health and our fruitfulness. So we shouldn't think for one moment that the Father is not as deeply interested in our spiritual prosperity as Jesus is. Because, because of our union with Christ, we are, we are bearing fruit, but the Father wants us to bear more fruit. And so He prunes us with, with His gracious, loving, tender pruning shears so that we'll bear even more. It's spiritual fruit bearing that explains the pruning work of the Father. And it's for our good and His glory. But we've got the trust that the Father knows what He's doing. And He absolutely does. And then in verse 3, Jesus assures his 11 remaining disciples that they are true branches. They're true disciples. He says to them, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You know, you're clean. In other words, you're saved. Your sins have been washed away. You've been redeemed. This refers back to John chapter 13 where Jesus assured Peter and the other 10 disciples saying, you are clean, but not every one of you, a reference to Judas. And so Jesus assures his disciples, you're clean, you're saved, you're, you're united to me as branches to the vine. This, the same life that lives in me lives in you. 
mean, they were true branches, and, and, and Christ's life was being reproduced in them. There was, there was spiritual fruit in their lives. And then he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, fruitfulness is the result of Jesus' life being reproduced in his disciples. And the disciples' part is to abide or to remain as it's also translated. I mean, that's something that we are expected to do. Jesus is telling his disciples that abiding or remaining in him is the key to to fruit-bearing, to the glory of the Father. Well, what does it mean to abide? Well, abiding in Christ is not some kind of mystical feeling, nor is it a, a warm inner glow. Abiding is also not inactivity. It's not being passive. You know, just sitting around abiding, you know, until you die. (laughs) The word abide means to stay. It describes something that remains where it is, continues in a fixed state, something that endures. And the command to abide is not fulfilled in a single act. Abiding for the disciples and for all believers today means maintaining an unbroken communion with Jesus. In other words, this is speaking of a a daily active faith in Him. You know, believing what He has said to be absolutely true, reading and and searching the Scriptures, communing with Him in prayer, and and then living our lives accordingly. It's it's living in utter dependence upon Jesus and having the, the words of Christ dwelling in us, rooted and grounded in us, shaping us, molding us, directing, informing, and, and guiding us. And all of that based on our being united with Him by faith, drawing upon all the resources that are already ours in Christ. All that we need for life and godliness. Abiding in Christ is a lifelong relationship with Him. It means you're in it for the long haul. And the relationship grows more intimate over the years, or it should be. You know, just as a marriage is a lifelong relationship where both partners should grow closer to one another over the years, so it should be with Jesus. But as those who have been married for very long know, growing closer isn't automatic, is it? It requires purposefully spending time together. You have to keep working through issues that come up. Because if you don't work at it, it's very easy to drift apart. And the same is true of abiding in Christ. There will be times when you feel closer and times when you feel more distant, but the key is to keep coming back to Him and to keep working on your relationship with Him. You can't put it on autopilot. You have to continually be drawing near to Him. Continually be in fellowship and and communion with Him. You know, abiding is is living a a life of close and intimate communion with Christ, just drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to Him. And the more the believer does so, the more that he's going to experience Christ's loving presence, and the more we're going to love Him. You see, the idea is that everything depends on our relationship with Christ. Because it does. 
Everything depends on our relationship with Christ, on having unbroken union and communion with Him. Everything depends on being so well connected with Him that that the sap, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit can flow from Him into us, causing us to bear fruit and to be productive. And as Jesus says in the rest of verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Branches obtain life through the vine. They're sustained by the vine. They produce fruit through the vine. The only way to bear fruit is for the branches to abide in the vine. Just as the branch of a vine cannot produce any fruit on its own apart from the vine, so too the believer cannot bear spiritual fruit apart from an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And to expect fruit-bearing is possible for the man who doesn't abide in Christ is even more foolish than to expect that a branch that's been cut off from the vine can bring forth grapes. The only way believers can bear spiritual fruit, the fruit of Christ-like character, is by abiding, by living in constant fellowship and communion with Jesus. And, And throughout church history, The greatest saints have always been those who lived nearest to Christ. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So here Jesus repeats the fact that he's the vine. He explicitly says the disciples and by extension all believers are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, that that would only be a true believer. He it is, Jesus says, that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Lord did not say, without me, I can, without you, I can do nothing. He didn't say that. He said, apart from me, you could do nothing. And that doesn't mean that you're unable to function. I mean, you can do many things in your own strength without a dependence on Christ. You can raise a family, you can run a business, you can be very active even as a Christian. You can fill your days with tremendous activity and busyness. I mean, it's, it's possible to counsel people and to preach in the strength of the flesh without a dependence on Christ. But without a dependence on Christ, you're not, become, you won't, you're not going to become Christ-like. And therefore, you will have achieved nothing in God's sight. Jesus means that we cannot bear spiritual fruit without Him. As one man noted, we can tie the outward fruit of external religious activities onto our lives like ornaments on a Christmas tree. But the real spiritual fruit of Christ-like character comes from the vine itself. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We cannot be loving or patient or faithful or holy apart from Him. And that is why God does not protect us from difficulties, trials, and and sorrows of life, but rather exposes us to them so that we will learn to hold fast to Him. You see, abiding involves a growing sense of our own weakness. And along with that, a greater realization that we must consciously, deliberately depend upon the Lord Jesus. The Christian life without dependence upon Jesus is barren. 
It's barren. And we must abide in Christ. We must draw nearer and and nearer to Him, living in utter dependence upon Him, His grace, His strength, His power, His provision, His help. I mean, Jesus is reminding His disciples and all believers of the incomparable adequacy and all-sufficiency that comes from a relationship with Him. He's emphasizing the point that the relationship between Himself and all who belong to Him must be as close and intimate as that between a vine and its branches. And He is encouraging us to keep up the habit of maintaining the closest intimate communion with Him. And this is the secret, if I can say it that way, this is the secret of bearing not just fruit, but much fruit. The key to bearing more fruit is much likeness to Jesus. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. We can achieve nothing of spiritual value in God's sight. Nothing that would be God-glorifying. And when we bear much fruit, down in verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so if we truly belong to Jesus Christ and abide in Him, then we're going to bear spiritual fruit. And we're going to be productive in the Christian life. And the spiritual fruit in our lives will reflect God's own character. Well, I mean, just take a look at your own life. Examine yourself. Take a look at your own life. Does your life uh, you know, reflect Christ's character? And I suppose some should be asking, is there even any spiritual fruit in my life at all? Because if we're truly His, we're a true branch. We're in union with the vine. There's going to be spiritual fruit. And the spiritual fruit in our lives will reflect God's own character. And when He sees His character reflected in our lives, so that people then catch glimpses of what He is truly like, He's glorified. And it's especially true when there's much fruit. And a fruitful Christian life will not only bring glory to God, it also supplies the best evidence to our own hearts that we are real disciples of Christ. Because there is no other explanation for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And believers are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And we cannot produce those things in our own lives. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot produce those things in our own lives. It is all of Christ. It is His Spirit that produces this fruit in our lives. And so all dependence upon self and all glorying in self is to be excluded. And and all the credit and all the glory and all the honor and praise belong to God alone because it is all a work of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
You see, we have a God who loves us. A God who tends to us. A God who wants to grow and develop and cultivate us so that our spiritual lives are fruitful. I mean, everything the Father and the Son do is geared to increase our abiding and our fruitfulness. And so when it comes to the seven metaphorical I am statements in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here he said, I am the true vine. And it's like, well, so what? <laughs> so what? What does that mean? What does it mean to us? That as the bread of life, Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide true soul satisfaction, both in this life and for eternity. And as the light of the world, the life he shares with those who follow him gives, uh, gives light, you know, sp- light, spiritual light, divine light, the light that comes from new spiritual eye-opening life, eternal life, and this light will never go out. As the door of the sheep, he is the only door into the presence of the Father. When we go in, we find salvation and protection. And when we go out, we find pasture and abundant life. And as the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life, or laid down his life for the sheep to rescue us from sin and death and hell. And we are in the care, the loving, watchful care of the good shepherd who doesn't run away when the wolves come. He's there to lead us, guide us, protect us. Lead us into green pastures and by the still waters. And as the resurrection and the life, He gives everyone who lives and believes in Him eternal life and they will never die spiritually because eternal life cannot be extinguished by physical death. And as the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus is the only way of salvation, the only way to the Father, the only way to to heaven because he is the truth and the life. And as the true vine, he makes it possible for us to have a close, intimate relationship with him in which we have spiritual union and communion by which we will bear spiritual fruit to glorify the Father. But apart from him, we can do nothing. I mean, doesn't that make you want to learn even more about Jesus? Doesn't that make you want to explore even more who He is and and all that He is and all that He does? May the Lord so work in our hearts that our great desire is to pursue Him and to love Him and to become more and more like Him, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost, because that's what we're called to. We are called to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us, because we belong to Him. We have been bought for a price. We belong to Christ. And when we consider who He is, and all that He is, and all that He has done, our heart should be filled with love and adoration 
and gratitude and thanksgiving so that uh, nothing we, we could do or give or uh, no matter how much we serve, it could never be enough because we love him that much because we realize what he has done. You know, may the Lord work all of these things in our hearts and minds. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, Father in heaven, pray we this thank study you will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free.